Ecclesiastes. Book of Depression, chapter 7. You can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we can grab one for you. Is everyone good? We got one. We're moving right through. We got five. Uh, after today, we'll have four chapters left in Ecclesiastes. Um, I don't know how it's been for you. Uh, for me, um, it's been life giving, it's been eye opening, it's been um, corrective. Uh, it's, I have been rebuked. Uh, I have been caused to, or uh, it has caused me to, uh, to be challenged, to examine myself and my thinking, uh, that which I'm running to, that which I'm putting all my weight on and leaning into for happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction. So like, I've been completely blessed. Um, I hope that you have as well. Um, almost all of them have been a little challenging. The nature of his writings and Ecclesiastes have been a little challenging. Uh, today probably will um, as well. Um, but again, I want you to know, first of all, that I love you, number one, and then number two, um, that, uh, that we're the first ones on the beach every week, meeting the pastors who preach these messages. Like we're the first ones being dealt with by God and these texts every week. And so I uh, just want to remind you of that. We're not, we're not coming to preach over you or at you. These things are, are for us first. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and we're going to pick up in, um, actually, verse 15. Chad took 1 through 14 last week. Um, and so we're going to take 15 to the end. We're going to try to get there. I'm sorry. We will get there. That sounded, that sounded scary for you guys. Chapter 7, verse 15. Here's Solomon. In my vain life, I've seen everything. It's an interesting way to open this section. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither, a, uh, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and that from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who were in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I say I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is, in, in, that, that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Sorry, we'll get to that. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes some weird weird stuff in here the way that it's worded and so we're going to try to to deal with this again we're not going to do surgery we can't we can't afford to do surgery on this thing because there's not enough time in the day to do that and so what I'm going to attempt to do is bring four points out of this this morning um, concerning wisdom and more specifically wisdom from above um you and I are living in what's been called the information age, the information age. And, and it, it's really the internet that has changed everything, like everything. Um, we, we now, at, at the press of a button, anytime, anywhere, can go anywhere, can learn anything, can get the answer to something. It, it's, a, it's absolutely insane if you think about it. Um, if I'm at home and my washer and dryer breaks, um, we can go onto YouTube right there and watch a video of someone going through and fixing that exact same appliance that we have. Like we can do that from 
from home, like in the moment. We don't even have to wait if we have the right parts or we don't need replacement parts. It's insane. Um, if I was a, a video gamer, which I'm not, um, I, I would be able to go on anytime I got stuck in a game immediately and figure out how to get unstuck. You know what I'm saying? Which I, I am, by the way, I, I do, I see it back there. I, I, I do enjoy my gaming every once in a while. So little confession um, for you. I, I can go on and I can, and I can find out uh, how to not be stuck. Like, a me like we can literally go on and we can find out anything at any time from any place. It's insane to think about. And it's really interesting in light of when you consider what was prophesied uh, to Daniel uh, by Daniel at the end of his book where it says, you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And you got to ask yourself when you read that, like, what does that, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that the human race continues to evolve to where our brains get bigger and we actually are able to know more things? No, our brains are the same. In fact, I think our brains are smaller than they were back in Daniel's day. Um, but um, so, so what does it mean when it says knowledge will increase? It means that the amount of information that we have um, to access at any time from any place increases, which means that we, we've got so much information that we're able to grab at any moment that I don't know about you, but to me, it's almost overwhelming. Like I get headaches sometimes just scrolling through some of my feeds and some of my apps on my phone because of just simply the amount of information that I'm taking in. I, I, I'm, I'm almost convinced that, I'm, that we're not built for that. And I've actually had to start like removing some of them <laughs> just to give my brain a little bit of a break. Yeah, of course, I wouldn't remove the app. I just got to remove some of the things going on the app. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's, in, in, it, it's just insane to think about. And, and think about this. If you could go back in time 100 years, just 100 years with your cell phone and the Internet, you could literally rule the world. You could rule the world with what you know like that with the information that you have. So here we are in the 21st century, we have more information than ever, more knowledge than ever, and far less wisdom than ever. Far less wisdom than ever. In fact, it's probably fair to say that as knowledge has increased in our world, wisdom has decreased. <clears throat> and by the way, I'm not suggesting that knowledge is bad. We know that knowledge is not bad, but knowledge without wisdom can be useless and even dangerous dangerous. If there is something that should have jumped out to all of us by now going through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it's that wisdom is important. It's a, it's a main theme to the book and not just any kind of wisdom, but a certain kind of wisdom, right? Because there's actually, uh, the Bible actually identifies two types of wisdom that exists in this world, two, two types that we can possess, um, and, and the one is the kind of wisdom that is from above, that comes from God. And the other is worldly wisdom, which comes from under the sun or from below, okay? And what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the thing that allows us to sift through the information, sift through the information and put it in its proper place. Let me say that again. Wisdom is that which sifts through the information that comes at us, that we're gathering, and allows us to put it or interpret it right and put it in its proper place. Knowledge adds information to your brain. Wisdom interprets it and puts it where it belongs. One front loads, one back loads, right? That's how it works. But if our wisdom isn't from above, we will misinterpret and we will misappropriate the information that we collect, which is basically the book of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. So um, as an example, how many of you have known uh, Christians, or maybe even not a Christian, who knows their Bible really well, who has a lot of Bible, who would actually even put you to shame with the amount of Bible knowledge that they have. They're able to retain the stuff that they've read in the Bible. They know where verses are. They can even, they can even just spout off verses like this. They can just click them off, but they have no wisdom to accompany how to interpret those words. 
How many people do we see all the time? How many churches do we see going up all the time that claim to be churches, that even open their Bibles, and yet the way that they're representing the Word of God, the way that they're teaching the Word of God, the way that they're bringing the Word of God forward is completely, completely backwards and convoluted. That's because you can have knowledge about something, but if you don't have wisdom, that's when you become dangerous. We need wisdom to help us interpret the information that we have. This is what allows us, wisdom from above, to actually understand our Bibles where we read them. Did you know that this is spiritually discerned? So this is not something that just the natural man, the sinner, left in his sin, can approach and fully grasp in the way that it's intended to be grasped. Can't do it. It's Egyptian hieroglyphics to the unregenerated man. We need the spirit of God, the wisdom from above that comes from the spirit of God to fill us so that we may have eyes, glasses that allow us to understand the knowledge that it's giving us, the information that it's giving us. We need God to understand what it is that we're seeing. And and that's, of course, just one example. You can be the smartest person and the biggest fool at the same time. That's just the truth. You could, you could be the smartest person on earth and the biggest fool at the same time. And to desire to be wise without consulting the most wise one is vain too. It too is an exercise in futility according to Solomon. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? So so here we're seeing a difference between the wisdom that we get from God and the wisdom that the world possesses and functions in, okay? It's contrary to his. He goes on, 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world, anybody? Right here. To shame the wise. To shame the wise. Romans 1, 21, 22, although they, the human race, knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became fools because their wisdom was not wisdom. If our wisdom we seek and desire is not from above, we will misinterpret the information we collect and actually be found to be fools. With that being said, we can now move into some of Solomon's craziness here on on wisdom, Um, beginning with verse 15, which says, in my vain life, I've seen everything, period. So he sets us up right here for everything that's about to follow. He's going to start walking us through that which he has um, observed in his vain life. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to bring out just four truths concerning wisdom out of this section, okay? Because there's a lot here. So we're going to try to get the heart of, um, of uh, extract the heart of what it is that Solomon's talking about. Here's the first one. Wisdom from above can help you battle karma. Some of you are like looking at me sideways. Wisdom from above can help you battle karma. We see that right here in 15 through 18. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who, who, who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from Uh, that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out of them both. Wisdom from above can help us battle karma. Some of you are like, what karma? I'm a Christian. Like I don't, I don't believe in that garbage. Like get that voodoo stuff out of my face, right? We don't believe in karma, but, and, and I know that we want to believe that's true, but if we're honest about what's going on around us when it happens, practically, We play out karma first in our thinking and our interpretation of what it is that we're seeing. We know it's wrong, but it seems so right. It's so natural, right? So so most of us are closet karma Christians. I mean, seriously, if you listen to your thoughts when stuff goes down, 
And this is really easy to do right now with everything that's going down in this world. If you listen to your thoughts when stuff goes down, if you listen to what you say out loud even sometimes, it's pretty bad. And I'm speaking again for myself. When something bad happens to someone that we have decided is wicked, you'll hear yourself say things like, well, they've got what's coming to them. Right? Or is it just me? They got what's coming to them. Or what goes around comes around. Or they deserved it. How about when something bad happens to someone we've determined is good and innocent? They didn't deserve that. They were so young. It just doesn't make sense that this would happen to such a good person, such an innocent person. And, and, and Solomon, in his wisdom observations, is going to kill that notion. And, and in fact, the way that he kind of does it, he's going to make a little bit of fun of it as he goes, if you're understanding what it, what it is he's saying here. Um, he, he's saying, look, the reality is that bad things happen to good people, and not only that, good things happen to bad people. You guys all see that here? That's what he's letting us know. This is a true statement. In fact, it's such a true statement that Jesus will go on to endorse it in places like Matthew 5.45, where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, I'd like to stop right there and preach a whole sermon on that because we need it, but we're not. We're going to move on. He goes on next to say, for he, Jesus speaking of the Father, makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. On the just and the unjust. In other words, we may think that karma is wise thinking, that good happens to good, bad happens to bad, but wisdom from above says differently. It tells us something else. And the truth is that there are things that happen to good people and bad people that have nothing to do with payback or reward, that have nothing to do with credit or debit. It just is what's happening. So, so what Solomon, in effect, is saying is that if we live in a karmic universe, something's terribly broken, like something has completely malfunctioned, because it's not what we actually see when we look around us from day to day. We actually witness completely the opposite when we look around us. This goes without saying, but if karma is valid truth, what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about his life? What does that say about the kind of person he was, if karma is true? Because the worst thing that has ever happened, happened to him. And yet he was without sin. There was no bad karma there. And look how his life went. Look at his reward, right? So, so really, only once has something bad happened to someone who's good, and he signed up for it. You know what I'm saying? He signed up for it. He went to that cross willingly, and he was the only truly good person that's ever walked this earth, right? Karma doesn't work. It's not something that our Bibles teach us. It is right for us to want justice. That is not a bad thing. It is right for us to want justice, and justice will be served. Make no mistake, guys. God is going to exact every single thing. Every single thing. But it's not necessarily going to happen in this life the way that you and I would like to see it on the people that we would like to see it on. That is not ours. That is his. And he will take care of that. Now, I do need to clear up a couple verses here real quick. Some of you are really excited right now. Um, specifically, verses 16 and 17, uh, which, which, which again say, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why would you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither uh, be a fool. Why would you die before your time? Some of you are like, this is rad. This is an awesome verse. I had no idea verses like this were in my Bible. Like, I'm going to put this on the refrigerator and look at it every day when I wake up. This is going to be my life verse. Do not be overly righteous, right? And just be kind of wicked, but, like, not too wicked. Like, go, go easy on your sinfulness. Like, just, 
you know what I mean? Manage it well, um, no. That's not what's being said here. We know that's not what's being said because the rest of our Bible would completely reject this. The rest of it would. In fact, this is a perfect example of what I just talked about earlier. You can have knowledge of the Bible and know verses like this and pull them out, but have no context, no wisdom in where to place it. A verse like this could be super dangerous and probably has been to a cult that started in some basement somewhere. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like this is, this is going to be the verse, you know what I mean, that plunges this church forward, you know? No, no. That, that's not where Solomon's going with this. So, so what the heck is Solomon talking about? Well, there's two primary enemies. There's two primary enemies that the Christian has, that the child of God has. You ready for them? One is the enemy of self-righteousness. The other one is the enemy of self-defeat. These are both our primary enemies. They're both killers to the witness and the joy and the life that we have in Christ. Both of them. And first he speaks to a kind of righteousness that's wrong and sinful, um, which is self-righteousness. It's the assumption uh, of the one who's good when they're really not. When they're really not. So um, Solomon's going to kind of play along with this today. Um, and, and, and what this person says is, um, um, I'm good. I'm one of the good ones. I'm on the good team. You ever heard a Christian do this? Right? I vote Republican. I hate abortion. I pay my taxes. So I'm a good person. No. I'm safe from bad things because I'm one of the good ones. Right? But this dude... This dude over here, he's not safe because he's not, he's not one of the good ones. He's one of the bad ones. He's not where I am. And, and, and I want us to understand this. Most of us define righteousness by what we do, but even more so by what we don't do. By what we don't do. Which means that we're always comparing ourselves with somebody else. We're always able to look at and find someone who's worse and say, good, bad. Yeah, I'm a bit rusty in this part of my life, but I don't beat my wife. I don't murder people. I don't torture animals. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so, like, I'm good. Do you know what the problem with that kind of thinking is? Jesus. Like, like Jesus puts a wrench in that kind of thinking. He actually ruins that kind of thinking completely. Um, have you ever read the Beatitudes? <laughs> like, like I, you cannot, as a Christian with the Spirit of God um, teaching you, guiding you, leading you, read through about three or four chapters of the Beatitudes and not come out completely empty-handed, like driven to the dirt. Any goodness that you think you possess on your own, he erases in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we thought the law was bad because if we compare ourselves to the law and look at how we're doing, we all know that we're, we're falling, we're failing, right? And so that's what the, the, the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to actually kill us. It's supposed to actually condemn us and show us that we fall short of God's target for righteousness. Jesus actually takes and amplifies the law in the Beatitudes. Oh, you haven't murdered anybody? Well, um, actually, have you ever been angry at someone? Okay, you're, you're a murderer. You know what I mean? Like, we thought it was this, and, and like, yeah, I can, I can go my whole life and keep from actually taking somebody else's life. He's like, no, you've already done it. <laughs> like, you've already done it. I've never committed adultery. Oh, okay. Have you ever lusted? Sorry. Like, he, he, he just kills anything that we, we're like the rich young ruler coming to him, trying to grab onto some straw and say, check this out, and he'll just take whatever it is we have and just kill us with it. Because there is no good in us. We are sinners. There is no cause for self-righteousness. 
If you are in Christ, it ain't because of you. If you have Jesus, it's not because you did something good or you did something right or because you're a good person. The only thing that separates you and I from the people out there that are the bad people is the grace of God. There is nothing else. It's Christ alone and his work on our behalf that makes us not them anymore. And so there is no basis, there is no cause for us to walk around as if we are better than anybody. Because we're not. We are only as good as Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. We need this today. We need to hear this. The church of God needs to hear this today. Because I think more than any other time in my life, for sure, I am just disgusted by my fellow Christians and the way that they treat and talk about and look at the world. It's us and them, us and them. I'm good, they're bad. I'm smart, they're stupid. What are we doing? I have no idea how we've gotten here to this place that we're at, but Jesus wouldn't have it if he was here. It wouldn't look like that. And, and so, again, I want us to hear the wisdom and feel the wisdom in what it is that Solomon's talking about, even if he's kind of doing it in a joking way. If this is no laughing matter. The only reason we have what we have is because of him. Again, here's the synergism in salvation. We did the sinning, God did the saving. If you need synergism, there it is. That's it. That's all you get. Self-righteousness is an ugly thing. In fact, um, just to hit it home a little more, not that I think I need to, um, in Luke 18, Jesus tells us this really cool little story, which is that there is a tax collector which were the really bad guys, right? Like if you know your New Testament, there were sinners, like there was a category for sinners and then there was a whole separate category for tax collectors. Like they got their own category because they were so nasty. They were so despised by the general population. Like they were the worst of the worst. So he tells this story and it's a tax collector and a Pharisee, a religious leader, go up to the temple to pray, right? And, and, he, and he says that the, the religious leader, the Pharisee, stands alone. For some reason, he includes that. He stands alone, meaning he's up there with other people that are praying, but he's still better than them, so he, like, stands in his own spot, away from the rest of these sinners that are praying. And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on in his prayer about how much he does, all the good that he does for God and all the stuff that he doesn't do, and how he's not like all these other miserable people that are sitting over here praying next to him. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these miserable people, especially this tax collector, right? And then he goes on about his way. And then here comes the tax collector. And it says that he doesn't even like come or approach the place of prayer. He stands way back. This dude can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He can't even look in the direction of God because he is so ashamed of who he is and what he's done, he beats his chest, and he can't even lift his head up. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a poor sinner. Jesus turns to his disciples, and he asks the question, who went away justified that day? Who went away to put it another way, cleansed, forgiven, right before God. Because we, we all know who the good person and the bad person is. He wants to make sure his disciples know who the good person and the bad person is. The good person is the one who knows he's not. Brothers and sisters, there is an opportunity to love people right now that are not like us to the glory of God. 
they need what we have. Not our self-righteousness and our pride, because we're good and they're not. They need to see our humility in knowing that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They need to own the words, have mercy on me, a poor sinner, so that they may have life. We should want this for all men. We should want this for all men. All right. I beat that one. You guys are not going to be going to lunch if we don't keep moving. So we have the, the, self, the self-righteous side. Then on the flip side, here with Solomon, um, he says, don't be too wicked. Don't be too wicked. Um, for us, what does this mean? Don't give yourself over to defeat in your sin. Don't give yourself over in exhaustion against sin. So I don't know about you, but here's my definite tendency as Christians. I know this for you too. We attempt to be good. We attempt to be righteous. We attempt to follow and obey God well in all that he's commanded us because he has commanded us to do it only to find that we cannot ultimately succeed completely. We can't. So in despair, we swing to the other extreme of not trying. Anybody? I've been there seasons of my life. Like, what's the use? Like, no, no matter how much I pull up my pants, you know what I mean, and, and put on my boots, you know, and trudge through this battlefield against sin, I'm still going to have it. I'm still going to fall short. So you know what? I'm just not going to put boots on, and I'm just not going to trudge through it. I'm just going to let it all go. There's times I've just been exhausted, and I fall into defeatism. And we must, understand, we must understand that we cannot be without sin in this body, which is why we so desperately need Jesus. But we, by the power of Jesus, battle for every inch of righteousness because we have Jesus. Yes, I sin, but it's no longer my master. Yes, I sin, but it's no longer my owner. Yes, I sin, but it's no longer my identity. That is no longer who I am before God, is a sinner. I am a saint. And if you are in Christ, you are too. God in Christ has given us new names. I'm not that guy that I used to be. Why? Because Jesus has come and made the difference. He's, he's come and he's, he's made me white. He's made my sins white as snow. He's clothed me in his righteousness. So I no longer have to be led by that, even though I will find myself falling into that. I can now be led by my new master. I can now be led by my new Lord, which is the God that's even over sin. He's greater than our sin. Right? I even like, I even like righteousness now, which is not something I used to like. That's weird. I even like holiness. I even like some of the things that God likes now, which is bizarre, because it, I, I, I promise you, I used to be just contrary. I used to love the thing. That's the whole reason I, I felt guilty growing up all those years in the church, is because you got all these people sitting around talking about how rad the Lord is and how they want to live the way that he's told them to live, and I'm sitting there going, well, well what's wrong with me? Because I want to go do this bad thing over here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I want to I go participate and experience this thing that they're all telling me I'm not supposed to do. What's wrong with me? It, 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 it's so cool that when we are born again, that when we're born from above, that he gives us new desires. He washes and cleanses our mind and our heart. He puts the law in our heart. And he takes that, that heart of stone and he turns it into a heart of flesh so that we now feel at our core a little bit of what he does. We can now desire the things that he wants us to desire. We no longer have to be defeated and live in a state of defeat in our sin because he has conquered it. He has conquered it. So when you sin, do not fall into despair. Do not fall into defeatism because he's taking care of that. Run back to him. Your sin should not cause you to run away from God as a child of God. When you sin, it should cause you to run to him. I need to go back home. I need to see dad again. I need my father. All right.
So those are the, the two enemies, the two things that, uh, challenges that we face continually um, as children of God. And um, we need wisdom from above. Um, because we need strength. We need wisdom from above because it, it gives us strength. Um, that's number two. Wisdom from above gives you strength. We find that in verse 19. Wisdom gives you strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Most cities have one ruler and it can be strong. You guys remember Alexander the Great? Like, like, like he handled some business. You know what I mean? Like nobody messed with Macedonia. <laughs> He was the dude, okay? Imagine having a city with 10 Alexander the Greats. Like how strong that would be. How impenetrable that would be. That's what he's talking about. That's what it's like to have wisdom. The other reason why we want wisdom is because wisdom gives us strength. In other words, the, the, the walls are up. The walls are strong. They are fortified they are positioned well. They are not easily breached. The city is not easily outsmarted or deceived or captured or overtaken. The city is found in peace and safety and security. It's governed well. It's run well when there's a multitude of counsel. That's what wisdom is like. When we have wisdom from above, the walls are up. The city is fortified. And we're able to live in peace and in safety as we go through life. See, godly wisdom governs your whole life. It's an entire worldview. It's an entire worldview. It governs your thoughts so you don't start letting your mind wander into neighborhoods that are bad and falsehoods. It governs your speech so that you don't spit poison every time you open your mouth. It governs your decisions so that you don't find yourself in regret or bondage or consequence, which is different than karma, by the way. It governs, your it, it governs your reactions so you don't find yourself in debt to whoever was on the other side of it. It governs your emotions so you can navigate the turbulent waters of your feelings by finding a calm passage through sound mind, through sober thinking. Wisdom does all these things when we have it. Wisdom from above makes you strong, able to stand, able to please and honor God, even when everything around you is attempting to draw out the worst in you. It gives us self-control. Wisdom from above gives us strength. We need wisdom from above, which gives us strength because there's not one who is on his own, not weak, susceptible, open to attack. Without sin or the propensity to sin, this is verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We are all vulnerable. We are all susceptible to do things that are wrong, to respond to things wrong, to say things wrong, to treat people wrong, to think things wrong, to interpret things wrong, because something is wrong. So we need to be governed by something that's right. We need wisdom. We need wisdom from above that gives us strength because verses 21 and 22. Do not, take, um, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. We need wisdom from above that gives strength to us because we will be hurt by people close to us. We will be hurt by people that we love. We will be hurt by people that care for us. And how will we deal with it? How will we respond to that? How will we interpret that? Godly wisdom will say, I know what you want to do. I know that you've been wronged and you want to take matters into your own hands, but you don't have to. You don't have to repay evil with evil. You don't have to get revenge. Wisdom says it's only your pride that's been damaged. You'll get over it. Like, you'll, you can come back from that. In other words, we don't have to take it to heart. We don't have to allow something like that to fill our heart, to consume us. Because after all, we're no better. There's wisdom. We're no better. See, a worldly wisdom in this instance may say, I'm not going to stoop to their level and respond because I'm better than that. It's not wisdom, that's self-righteousness again. I'm not going to respond, I'm not going to hit the ball back because I'm better than that. They're not worth my time. 
right? That's, that's self Wisdom from above says, I am that trash talker. I've done that. I'm no better. That's what wisdom does. See, wisdom allows us to see the ugliness in ourselves when we see it in others, thus diffusing the need to retaliate, to exact the wrong. It's been speculated as to what exactly Jesus wrote in the dirt that day. But in John chapter 8, we have this really interesting thing that's not in the earliest manuscripts, by the way, and I don't want to get too far into this. This is something that you can go and look at yourself. But um, you will have a Bible that doesn't have this story recorded, or you will have one that has this story recorded at the beginning beginning of John chapter 8 with brackets around it. And that's to tell you that the earliest... Um, manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John don't contain this story, okay? But the reason why I have no problem with teaching it as if it's part of our Bible is because it's vintage Jesus. Like everything about it screams the person of Christ and what would have gone down. John tells us at the end of his Gospel that if he, if he were to write everything down that Jesus said or did, that there's like we wouldn't be able to contain the writings. And so like I have no problem that there's a ton of them out there that are legitimate stories, and here's one of them, okay? The religious leaders bring, it's always these dudes. It's always these dudes. I want you to notice the pattern. It's always the self-righteous religious people that bring a woman that was caught in adultery before Jesus. And they're trying to do what they always do, which is bait them into error, And so they ask him a question like, hey, we just found this woman in adultery. The law of Moses tells us that we need to stone her for what she's done. What do you say? They're they're trying to get this dude to trip up so that they have a reason to get rid of him, just like always. And Jesus goes down into the dirt. He kneels down, and he does something in the dirt with his finger, and then he stands back up. And he says, you who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he goes back down a second time to the dirt and he does something else with his finger. And the next thing you know, these guys one by one walk away and leave him standing there with this woman caught caught in adultery without using hardly any words, without causing a scene. Very quietly, very simply diffuses the entire situation. And he looks at her and he goes, huh, like, where'd they go? Now, it doesn't tell us what he wrote in the dirt, but I've always liked to think this. The first time he goes down, I like to think that he made a box with columns and a heading. And then the second time he went down, I like to think that he started filling in the columns. And in the heading of each column would be the names of each of these religious fools that were standing there. And then the columns below their names would be personal sins that nobody could possibly know. And as they're watching him fill in the columns, they're like, yeah, like, this is above our pay grade. We're out. Like, he just revealed to them that they probably should have been standing where she was. I like to think of this story when I think of picking up stones. Because it's right. I am not without sin. I I have no right to cast when I'm about to cast because I am that person. I've done that. I've done that. And that's wisdom from above that keeps us out of trouble and keeps us from starting fires that we don't have to go and put out later. You know what I mean? It helps us keep our side of the street clean. And it's godly. It honors the Lord. All right. I need to stop trailing. We're almost there. So number two, wisdom gives us strength. Number three, wisdom cannot be mastered. That's another thing that we see here. Wisdom cannot be mastered. This is verses 23 and 24. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? If you ever think that you have arrived, uh, you're far from arriving. You're far from arriving. In our sinfulness, we Christians can take good things that are even God things and make them bad things because that's what our hearts do. We can do it with anything. 
See, our hearts are idle factories. That's what John Calvin said. The human heart is just an idle factory. It just continues to manufacture idolatry, which we've seen clearly here out of Solomon in this book, right? We can, we can make wisdom an idol too, just like everything else. We can, we can take wisdom and make it about us somehow, just like Solomon's talking about here. But God won't let us because we cannot master it. It is too deep. It is too deep. We can, we can walk in it, we can grow in it, we can find blessing in it, but we cannot tap it out. We cannot go to the bottom of the well when it comes to wisdom. Solomon wants to, to plumb the full depths of wisdom, but acknowledges that it's too deep. He is unable to. God is just too big. He's just too big. Romans 11 comes to mind. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We cannot know what he knows. We cannot plumb the depths of the wisdom that is from above. This is why we can't figure out everything that God does. This is why you and I rarely get answers to why something happened to us or somebody else in our life. Even especially things that are horrible. We always want to know why especially as Christians. I want to know why this happened. And a lot of times there's no answers for that stuff. It's something that must stay hidden in the wisdom of God and the purposes of God. I think a lot of times, just like knowledge, what I was talking about earlier, I think, I, I, I believe that according to what I see here in, in Romans 11, that statement that our heads would explode if God actually chose to reveal to us some of the things he's chosen not to reveal to us. I don't think we can handle it. We can't handle it. It's too deep. It's too big. And so we have to gladly accept whatever God chooses to reveal to us and simply trust him by faith with the rest, which also is wisdom. That's wisdom too. To say, you know what? I don't get it, but I trust you. Just like we saw Job do when everything in his life fell apart and he had no explanation why. He didn't ask why. He just said, I ain't going anywhere else, no matter what. That's wisdom. Therefore, to insist on mastering wisdom is a foolish venture. In fact, this is the biggest reason why uh, the fools that you know are the ones that claim to be most wise. Any of you have teenagers? Um, any of you were teenagers? Do you remember how you, if you could go back and talk to that, person again right I swear I knew everything I knew everything and I was and I, and I was okay with telling my parents and my, and their pastor and everybody that I knew my teachers at school that I did know everything you know what I mean that's how we act we, we act like we have it all figured out and gosh we are so stupid the older I get the less I know I mean the less I know it's, it's just, it's just in, in, incredible, especially as I go into the Bible. The more that I go into the Bible, the less I know. That one sounds funny and probably wrong, but I mean it in the right way. <laughs> it's just, just the less I it's, God's too big. He's too much. What he's doing, what he's done, how he's done it, um, what, he's, what he's building and setting up for eternity for us, it's too much. It's too much. All I can do is receive it and say, thank you. I believe you're doing this. I believe you've done this. I believe you're doing this. I trust you. Just like Job. That's wisdom. Wisdom cannot be mastered. Number three. Now this next one, this last one, is going to maybe hit a little closer for some of you men. Um, <laughs> and that is wisdom can keep you from chasing your biggest idols. Wisdom can keep you from chasing your biggest idols. Specifically here, sexual immorality. Some of you may be like, no, nah, this is a metaphor like he does in Proverbs where her um, isn't referring to like actually females. It's referring to like folly or something. That's fine. You can go look into that. Um, the more I looked into that, the, this, the more that I'm convinced he's talking about a woman. If there's something that we can all agree on concerning Solomon's unpleasant side, it's a sexual foolishness. The sexual foolishness. The beauty of it, praise God, is that he's not so vain and embarrassed that he's not willing to be honest with us about what he's learned. 
The dude had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If you're a millennial, that's a call girl. That's all a concubine is. Our Bibles tell us that these women drew his heart away from God. So he's just a victim. It was her fault. Right. Notice what he says in 26. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. You know why Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife? Wisdom. Especially in our culture today, more than any other time I've seen, we tend to think of sex as an act of liberation, of freedom, autonomy, individualism, personal rights, even wisdom on a worldly level. But the Bible tells us that when people think they're free in such things as sex, they're fools. They're trapped. They're trapped. Solomon was trapped. Trapped in its snares and nets, as it says, as Solomon puts it in verse 26. And some of you men here today know exactly what I'm talking about. Because this is a real thing. The wisdom of the world has a different narrative than scripture regarding sex, doesn't it? That to suppress your sexual urges and desires is to suppress your maturity, the discovery of yourself, and what you want. That, that you're actually stupid or naive or even foolish if you save your sexuality for a God-given life partner. That it can even be disastrous if you do. Do you know what the average age is now? in our country for people tying the knot? 29, almost 30. If you go through the history of the average age of people getting married, you will see it start in the teens and you will see it over the last 40, 50, 60 years climb through the teens into the 20s and now we're about to hit the 30s. You know why? Sexual freedom. There is absolutely no reason to get married. In fact, it's even been called stupid. Me and my wife got married as kids. We have a daughter that just got married and just had a baby as a kid. And I can't even tell you the comments that I hear from people about the problem, the stupidity, how idiotic it is to get married young. I think maybe we were onto something before Because everything else is through the roof. Marriages are down. Divorces are up. People shacking up is up. Abortions are up. I mean, if you just go down the line looking at everything that's connected to our sexual freedom, it tells the story. It was so, it was so cool. We were in the park. There was a concert in the park a couple weeks ago, and the door's been setting up a booth there. And this kid, he must have been like 12, maybe 13, came walking by our booth, and he had this sweatshirt on that said virginity rocks. And it just kind of took me back for a second because like, first of all, no one that age wears a sweatshirt like that. And second of all, like, I haven't seen something like that in a long time in public. Like, I, I guess it, like growing up in the, in the 70s and 80s, I used to, once in a while, you would see something that was, that was kind of bold and countercultural like that, um, but uh, not anymore. And me, and me and my son were sitting there and we watched this dude go by and we're just kind of like, Dude, I want, like, I want one of those, you know what I mean? Like, I want to get me one of those, you know what I mean? And this dude just went, went walking by with this thing. I have no idea why. I don't even know why I'm telling you that. Uh, because it was rad, I guess. Because maybe we need more of that. We need more people thinking that way. Solomon knows. Solomon knows about wisdom on this because uh, he was an expert. He, he was an expert at what this did and what this didn't do on the, on the subject of finding identity and fulfillment and happiness and satisfaction and life in sex. He didn't. And apparently, uh, um, it, it's clear that it was unable to make good on its promises to him because the dude had, again, 700 wives and 300 call girls. Like, like I, I'm exhausted just thinking about that. That's crazy. And he's saying to us, what I was looking for there, I did not find. What I was looking for there, it did not provide me with. It's not there. Just like everything else that he's crossed off the list in this entire book, 
things that he's run to for happiness, for purpose, for meaning that didn't work. Add sex to the list. It gets crossed off too. It's not enough. It's not enough. By the way, verse 28, which is a really weird verse that a lot of commentators don't agree on, um, is not saying that men are better than women. I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Um, I, I believe it's simply saying in relation to not plumbing the depths of wisdom that he's been able to, to figure out a dude once in a while, but never a woman. That's what I think it's saying. You guys okay with that? All right, fight me. Fight me for it. Prove me wrong. Verse 29, finally. Verse 29 says, See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Where does he throw us? Where does he take us? All the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, right? He recaps the Bible narrative for us and how we ended up in this trap that we're in this cycle that we're in of vanity. God created everything good, we broke it, and we've been trying all kinds of things in our own strength, desires, and sinfulness to recover Eden ever since. And we can't. It's all a trap. All right, well, be warm and filled. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> we're done. See ya. No, actually, actually, I just want to read verse 20 again real quick. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. When Solomon wrote this, that was true. But not anymore. Not anymore. Because Christ has come. The embodiment of wisdom fully righteous, no sin in him, so that you and I, who are not wise and who are full of sin, may be the righteousness of God. This is where we find wisdom, guys. Proverbs chapter 9, what does it say? With fear and wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what we talked about last time. What does that do? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it takes us to Jesus, the righteous one, who is wisdom. And once we come to Jesus, the righteous one, who is wisdom, we are able to gain wisdom. We're able to know what wisdom is, that we can actually please God that we can obey, that we can have self-control, that we can love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates, right? It all happens through Christ. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it leads us to Jesus. And then we come to Jesus and he relieves our fears because there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? Now we can be free to love, follow, serve, the Lord in wisdom. I, I'm so glad sometimes that we live on the backside of Jesus, where we have like full Bibles in front of us. You know what I mean? It's, it's so nice to be able to come to a book like Ecclesiastes and look at it and study it and understand it in light of the rest of the story that you and I have the privilege of knowing and having revealed to us that it's all about Jesus, that he's the fulfillment of everything that we read about everything that we read about the volume of the book speaks of him meaning all of it all of it and so in Jesus' wisdom all right guys let's sing our last song lord god thank you for your word thank you for revealing what you've chosen to reveal and and i think i even want to thank you um for not revealing what you've chosen not to um we thank you, Lord, that there's things we can know, things that we can grow in, joy that we can have because of wisdom that's from above, and yet it's too, it's too much 
it's, it's, it's too deep for us. We cannot master that, which, which keeps us reliant and dependent on you. And so, and so again, just looking at all this, observing all this, we, we just see uh, uh, just the way you've crafted this is so perfect. Everything you do is so right. It's so um, beyond scrutinizing. And so we, ju- we just thank you again for being mindful of people like us. We thank you for the patience that you show us every day in our self-righteousness and also in our defeatism, our laziness towards righteousness. And, and, and all we can do is cry out for mercy, like the tax collector, have mercy on us, wretched sinners. And, and so we thank you for having done that. And we thank you that you continue to do that. As your word says that your mercies are new every morning. Your grace is new every morning. You don't get exhausted even though we do of doing good. And, and we just praise your name for that. And it's the name of Jesus that we enjoy relationship and salvation in you. And it's in his name that we pray.